My name is Audrey Gertson. I have the privilege of being the pastoral intern here at Artisan. Welcome this morning. I'm also a full-time MDiv student at Regent College at the UBC campus. MDiv is just the fancy title for becoming a pastor degree. Um, so that's me. I did not grow up with Lent, and so I only recently learned that Lent technically began on Wednesday, uh, but today is the first Sunday of Lent. Um, and not having grown up with Lent, I asked, Lent's not in the Bible, so why do we practice it? What's the gospel? What's the good news of Lent? Well, let's back up to the scripture that Shauna read this morning from Luke 4, 1 to 13. Some background to it. I'm going to get a little nerdy here. The story told here is also found in Matthew and Mark, often called the synoptic gospels, those three, because they each roughly follow a timeline of Jesus's life in some way, whereas the gospel of John is a special creature. And why is this so important that it's in all three? Well, it means it's well verified and thought to be so significant, so important, that it needed to be included in each of those three Gospels. And I'll get to other things that we know it's well verified, other evidence in a bit. Um, so each Gospel tells it a little differently. Mark, which is thought to be the earliest, the first written of the Gospels, is the shortest at two verses long, just chapters what, chapter one, verses 12 to 13. And the gist of it here is that the Spirit forced Jesus right after his baptism to the wilderness for 40 days where Satan tempted him and the angels took care of him. Both this event and his baptism are super short. Mark gets right to the point. Matthew 4, 1 to 11, is much more similar to Luke's version, and it's also much more similar to Mark's version than Luke is. So it's somewhere right in the middle. We're not entirely sure which gospel was written next, there's a lot of debate, but most scholars think that it was Mark, then Matthew, then Luke, then John. But again, there's debate. Matthew's story also comes right after Jesus' baptism, has the Spirit leading Jesus to the wilderness, and actually says the Spirit did this so that the devil might tempt him after Jesus had fasted for 40 days. Here, the three temptations are listed almost verbatim. The language is verbatim, exactly as Luke, except that the order is different. Matthew's story ends, saying that the, that the devil left him and that the angels took care of him, similar to Mark. Luke's version comes after Jesus is baptized. There's a little pause there, though. Also saying he was full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit to the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. So Matthew says Jesus fasted first, then was tempted. While Luke, it's kind of maybe happening the same, we're not sure. The important overall takeaways here is that Jesus didn't eat for 40 days. He was alone in the wilderness, and he was tempted by the devil. Some other things each of these versions have in common are that they each, were the, they each use the word diabolos in Greek for devil. Um, except for once in Matthew, he's called the tempter. Um, and if you don't like the word devil for that, we can also translate that as slanderer, enemy, adversary. It's the existence that's in opposition to the Holy Spirit. Each gospel also uses the word eremos to describe where Jesus was, and that can mean desert or wilderness. Um, so don't sweat it if those two are used interchangeably. Same thing. Each gospel confirms this was happening for 40 days, and it really strongly hints here at the mimicking and repeating of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, 
back in, in Numbers, if you remember Exodus, we go to Numbers, they continue the story, Leviticus is in between. A repeating, it's a repeating of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after this great event of being delivered from Egypt and journeying toward the promised land, facing their fair share of trial and tribulation in the wilderness and falling to temptation. Jesus, on the other hand, does not. If you want to read more about that, like I said, it's in Numbers right at the beginning. Um, and each gospel tells the story in tandem with Jesus' baptism and marks the beginning of his ministry and journey toward Jerusalem, like Terry said, where he'll be crucified and resurrected. Luke uniquely breaks up this um, baptism and temptation thing. There's the pause. And Luke uniquely adds Jesus' genealogy, which is interesting because it's a different genealogy than the one in Matthew or in John also. There's a little bit one. Matthew's is framed to emphasize Jesus as a Jew, and John's is framed to emphasize Jesus as the new Adam, which is from the Adama, which is the ground in Hebrew, so the Adam is the earth person, is what my Hebrew professor recently taught me, and I thought it was a fun fact to share with you. Uh, so Luke's genealogy is framed to emphasize how there's actually a long line of typically rejected people brought into the family of Jesus. He is Jewish, yes, but there's all these other people in his lineage as well. So Luke goes out of his way to point that out. Matthew was written for a Jewish audience, while Luke was written for Gentiles. In each instance, the start of his ministry is marked by the people he's come to serve and the prophecies he's come to fulfill. That's one part of the good news here. Another part here is the temptations Jesus faces, which are crucial to mark in the start of his ministry as well, right along with his baptism. I'm not sure if you've all, mm, I'm sure most, if not all of you, have heard the Spider-Man saying, with great power comes great responsibility. In this case, just think of it as like, with great power comes great temptation. They're the same thing, same thing. And maybe that's how we can rock climb without having our hands closed. It's like Spider-Man style, I don't know. The more power someone has, the more they could use it for bad and get away with it in a sense. We only need to read the news for that or listen to the news to know that. Here Jesus faces three key temptations as a human being, as an earth person, and as God incarnate, the word made flesh, proving that he is worthy of such power, trustworthy with such power, and he's perfect in it. Keep in mind, Jesus was alone when these things were happening. So he would have had to go back and tell his disciples about these temptations he faced later on so that they could be written down. And I think that changes the way we read the story a little bit too, that Jesus faced these temptations and then told the people who follow him, who look up to him about his experience. He confessed his temptations in a way, even though he didn't sin. So if you go back and read it later this week, I encourage you to keep that in mind. Change the way I read it for sure. The first of these temptations is the devil says to him, since you are God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus replies, it's written, people won't live only by bread. And here he's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. The second temptation, the devil brings Jesus to a high place. Matthew calls it a high mountain. And says he'll give him the whole area, all the kingdoms to Jesus, since it's been entrusted to him. 
and he can give it to whoever he wants. All Jesus has to do is worship the devil, and it's all his. Jesus replies, it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 13. The third temptation, last shot at it, the devil brings Jesus to Jerusalem and stands him on the highest point of the temple there, the same temple he went to with Mary and Joseph as a kid when they accidentally lost him. There, the devil says, since you are God's son, throw yourself down, down from here, for it's written, and here he quotes Psalm 91, 11 to 12, where it says God commands angels about us to protect us and will take care of us so that our, our feet won't hit the stone, which is true. It's scripture, it's true, it's trustworthy. Jesus replies, it's been said, AKA it's been written, don't test the Lord your God, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16. He's applying contextual reading here. He knows how to read his scriptures. Henry Nowen wrote this great, tiny little book, it's 100 pages long, called In the Name of Jesus, where he writes to those in Christian leadership by going through these three temptations. He uses Matthew's version, and I still recommend it for anyone who wants to dig into these temptations more. And he explains the three as the temptation to be relevant, the temptation to be powerful, and the temptation to be spectacular. The first, the temptation to turn stones to bread, now and sees as the temptation to be relevant, to meet everyone's needs, to fix everything, to be exactly what people want or need you to be, to be needed, to please people, and then losing ourselves in the process of getting wrapped up in that need. Tied up here is the participation us humans have in God's mission and serving others. If Jesus just does it all himself, or even if pastors do everything themselves, and the rest of the church doesn't participate, we lose that sense of being a body, of the communal nature of following Jesus. Jesus' response reminds us that though bread is important, it's not everything. Now one here notes also that the devil begins his temptation by saying, since you are God's son. He questions Jesus' identity. He makes it the, the ground for the temptation. Prove yourself in a way. Now one encourages us to dare to be irrelevant and owning our identity in Christ securely, not having to prove ourselves. The temptation to take over all the kingdoms of the earth is the temptation to be powerful, to have all control, influence, authority over everything. Important here is that it ties back to Eden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that gives them knowledge of good and evil, becoming like God in that way. It was about seeking power, and that was only possible because God gave them and gives to us the right to choose. Here Jesus has the chance to take away that right to choose, to take away our free will. But he knows that when it comes down to it, he, as God, has power over it all anyway. Worshiping illusions of power, promises of power, especially that which is not eternal, is more limited than resting in the power of God, which we have by the Spirit, which we have by worshiping, by choosing God. Now it notes that this is the temptation also to replace love with power and to resist, we must dare to rest in God's power giving to us and love one another mutually, giving love and receiving love. And especially a great quote here, it seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people, easier to own life than to love life. 
And a page later, he writes, many Christian empire builders have been unable to give and receive love. Confession upon, uh, on behalf of the church there. The temptation to jump off the temple and have angels catch Jesus is the temptation to be spectacular, says Nowen. To be admired and applauded as an individual to prove himself in a grand and public way. The devil here quotes scripture, not dissimilarly to how the Pharisees would do to try and corner Jesus into disobeying scripture. It's a trick. Jesus responds by again quoting Deuteronomy and he does this because this is where the Torah is written. It's God's instructions for worshiping him prior to Jesus making a new covenant, covenant later on. It's where the, the Shema is, especially in Deuteronomy 6, which is something that um, Jews, practicing Jews, would have been saying on a daily basis. That's why it comes to the front of Jesus' mind immediately. He says the law, the Shema, every day. And he does this by saying it's not right to test God, to corner him or toy with him, to try and push God around. Henry Nouwen here challenges the temptation toward individualism rather than interdependence. He dares us to be ordinary, secure in our identity once more, because once again, here the devil not only quotes scripture in the temptation, but adds, since you are God's son. Daring to be ordinary and secure doesn't mean never feeling special, or standing out, but rather trusting God's goodness toward us. We don't have to try and corner him to doing things for us. And it's trusting our, our secure identity in him, which can't be taken away or undone. So what does all this have to do with Lent? Lent isn't something instructed by the Bible, but rather like the Christian calendar was created by the church. So why do we practice Lent? Historically, Lent was giving up food in some way. It was fasting and praying during that meal or whenever you had that craving instead, fasting and prayer. We know that from the Bible, fasting and prayer. It's the, also the 40 days leading up to Easter. Bless you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's also the 40 days leading up to Easter, mimicking the 40 days Jesus fasted and prayed in the wilderness before he began his ministry which would take him to Jerusalem to be crucified and resurrected. If you were in the ACM on Sunday, it's something Scott shared about um, that the leader, excuse me, the cohort retreat in November, we went through this practice of death and resurrection. We had sticky notes for each because they're each important in their own right, death and resurrection. So we practiced Lent to journey with Jesus on the way toward Holy Week, which is Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. We journey with Jesus toward death and resurrection. This again mimics the Israelites wandering in the wilderness as read in Numbers, which is, in my opinion, more relatable when it comes to Lent than looking at Jesus's temptations alone. Because the Israelites have this great, amazing rescue from slavery in Egypt. They have God show up in astounding ways, parts the Red Sea, pillar of fire, Moses' face is straight up shining after talking to God on the mountain. And there's all these miracles. They get um, bread provided for them in the, in the form of manna. They have water come from rocks and meat to eat. They have all this provision, all these great, amazing miracles, only to complain it's not enough and they fall into temptation, 
and they make a gold calf to worship and they doubt God's ability to actually and finally bring them into the promised land. The land of resurrection maybe of their them as a nation, as a people, to no longer be slaves, but to be a nation once more. That to me describes Lent a lot more realistically. And it also reminds me of the empowerment of the spirit in me. We too are filled the spirit and led into the wilderness sometimes to work through our temptations of identity, control, and good enoughness. A couple of weeks ago, Lawrence preached a really great sermon on blessing our enemies and shared with us Kate Bowler's invitation to let go of carpe diem and instead to crappy diem that instead of trying to seize the day, we practice seizing the crap of the day. In her book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, she shares about her cancer diagnosis right as life finally seems to be picture perfect. She finally reached the promised land of sorts she had dreamed of, had a handsome husband, dream job, and finally had a kid after years of trying and some trauma, only to suddenly find out she had stage four cancer immediately rushed her into surgery. In chapter eight, titled Restoration, she writes, I have taken up cursing for Lent, the 40-day stretch before Easter in which those who want to understand Jesus' sacrifice choose one of their own. She goes on to say, and I mean it. I swear about cancer. I swear about dry croissants and coffee that cools too quickly. I swear about budding ulcers in my mouth from intense chemotherapy. I swear about the refugee crisis in Europe. I swear before and after I received test results, even though I'm tremendously relieved that so far the tumors are still shrinking. I swear about Curious George whining to the man in the yellow hat. I am relentless. Last week, I cursed at my mother-in-law in what I imagined was the halfway mark in her complaining about her wrinkles and her droopy parts. I think aging is an effing privilege, I say squarely. I'm not gonna swear when I preach. That's not what's written in the book, but I would like to keep my job here, thank you. She goes on in the story to explain her mother-in-law took it in stride, agreeing in laughter, and then going on with her day. Bowler takes up swearing as a way to mark and mourn and mark her suffering and all the big and little disappointments and irritations and crap of life. She sees Lent as a time when she doesn't have to be positive or see the bright side because it's not about becoming a tiny bit better of a person, but rather about our human finiteness. She takes up swearing and mourning and gives up putting on a brave face. The swearing comes to an end when she's having brunch with a friend who's also intensely suffering, and she's talking about the suffering. And Kate finds herself smiling. She actually says grinning. It's not like a polite smile, it's like a, yeah. She apologizes, but explains it's because she's so grateful to be understood in her suffering, to not be alone in feeling that way. In Lent, as she's facing the death, as she's facing death, through a bleak cancer diagnosis, the church faces it with her. Everyone is spending 40 days remembering we're all made of dust and will return to dust. Joan Chittister says this about Lent. Lent gives the lie to isolation. We are not alone. We walk with the church throughout the world on this journey to renewal. 
we walk too with the one who has gone before us to bring us home again. This is why on the first Sunday of Lent, uh, when we're following the Christian calendar, the gospel passage read and preached in churches is the story of Jesus being tempted for 40 days, either from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It reminds us to not be surprised by our own struggles with the will to have power, the desire for things, and the propensity for the morally maligned, all of which threaten to deter our giving ourselves to the things that count in life, says Joan Chittister. For, as Jesus triumphed over the seduction of the world and limitation of being human, so must we. I'm gonna read the last part again. As Jesus triumphed over the seduction of the world and limitation of being human, so must we, says Joan Chittister. And to be clear though, in case it needs to be said plainly, this is not about hurting or hating ourselves. But sometimes a criticism, and it can definitely get there. I was introduced to Lent when I was in the seventh grade and my Catholic friend gave up sugar because she wanted to lose some weight. That was my first introduction to Lent. Kate Bowler had a similar introduction this way at the Catholic girls' school that she went to. Chittister, Joan Chittister, responds to that by saying, Lent, the liturgical year shows us, is about the holiness that suffering can bring. But don't be fooled. Lent is not about masochism. It is about being willing to suffer for something worth suffering for, as Jesus did, without allowing ourselves to be destroyed by it. Lent is about being willing to suffer for something worth suffering for, as Jesus did, without allowing ourselves to be destroyed by it. That's why we journey with God and other Christians for 40 days, as Jesus did, and in some ways as the Israelites did before him, through struggle and temptation, through the crap idiom, toward death and resurrection, toward the promises of God. We journey for 40 days by maybe giving up meat, fasting from coffee, or maybe a particular coffee break, fasting from social media, fasting from being okay with everything, putting on a brave face. Whatever it is you feel called to give up, not to make yourself a tiny bit better, but to suffer alongside Christ and others. By taking up praying in that suffering, even if those prayers have swear words in them for this time. As we practice giving things up, things where we might feel tempted to be relevant, powerful, or spectacular, and take up prayer instead, we are transformed more into God's, into Christ-likeness. In giving up common temptations and practicing resistance of those temptations, we instead take up our identity in Christ, our eternal relevance, our secure good enoughness, and the power and the spirit to both give and receive love freely. And doing so bears fruit. Doing so allows the inverse to develop for our worthiness to be found not in fixing every need, and we become truly selfless, and we help out of love, not out of a desire to be relevant, or out of a desire to be needed. And our strength to be found in the spirit within us, whose strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. We don't have to be strong or in control all the time. Thanks be to God. Finally, 
for humility and holy meekness, and by meekness I mean patience and gentleness, to grow as we develop greater security in who we are, trusting we are worthy and loved even if we are not spectacular in every moment. I'm not sure if this is especially right or wrong to share, but I'm giving up sleeping in for 15 to 30 minutes instead, making a coffee, going outside, and praying. Praying especially for peace in the world and blessing enemies, thanks again to the reminder from Lawrence, that God would bless Russian soldiers and leaders to have eyes to see and ears to hear God's voice with soft hearts and a conviction to bring peace rather than war. I am desperately tempted to try to find a way to fix it. And if I could control it somehow, put me in charge of the world, I'll figure it out, trust me. And yeah, when I do that, if you wanna applaud for me, I can be a little spectacular. You know, like we have these temptations, we have these temptations. And if Jesus confessed it, I can confess it too. Getting up a bit earlier each day to pray about it while standing outside, coffee in hand, Looking at the North Shore Mountains reminds me that I am loved even if I can't fix it, control it, or in some way get glory out of it. It also allows me to show love to those who are suffering right now. A small way of saying I'm standing with you in the way that I know how by suffering in a small way with you. And I pray. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes I sense God's presence and sometimes I don't. Still, it's a way to love those who are suffering and to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ Jesus. And this is not a must, okay? This is an optional practice. It's a kind of third way thing where we center Jesus first. If one person gives up coffee, that doesn't mean another person has to as well. Rebecca and I talked about this on Wednesday. Giving up coffee makes some of us, it makes it really difficult for some of us to love our neighbors and that like trumps these things, right? But still love our neighbors, whatever we're giving up. And like Kate Bowler showed us, it doesn't need to look conventional either. That's the invitation here and the good news about Lent. To participate with Jesus in giving something up, to suffer a little for something worth suffering for and taking up praying by yourself and with everyone else observing Lent communally, praying throughout it while journeying toward God's promises of death and resurrection.